You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, radiotherapists. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Wishful thinking with the bright and sunny, I know. The sun was peeking through a little bit on my way in this morning, but my fingers felt like they were about to fall off on my bike. Uh, The reason I'm banging on about the sun is because our regular host, Dr Doolittle, is soaking up the sun somewhere very beautiful and luxurious, and I'm a bit jealous. But we're going to try and grab some of those summer vibes and brighten up your morning from inside the Triple R studios instead. My name's Dr. Training Wheels. I'm not actually a doctor, but I'm nearly half a doctor now, if I'm keeping track, which I definitely am. Uh, I'm a medical student. I usually sit at the other end of the desk while Doolittle does this bit, but I'm sitting in his chair this morning doing my best Doolittle impersonation, so go easy on me, everyone. Uh, we're also, we've got a fabulous team this morning. We've got Perry Pardum. She's psychiatrist, academic and all-round fab lady. She's going to talk to us about opiate use in Australia, specifically in Victoria, and I'm sure she'll be sharing some other pearls of wisdom with us too. We've also got Panel Beater, as always, doing all the hard work while we gas bag, but I think he's got a bit of gas bagging of his own to do today, is that right? He's going to talk to us about surgical voluntourism. Excellent topic. Let's get started. And good morning to you. Thank you very much. I'm How still are you, defro- Panel Beater? I'm still defrosting. Yeah, I think I'm only just getting the sensation back in my fingers now, actually. Yeah, my face is frozen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got up very early this morning because I got my new foster puppy. <gasps> what sort of puppy is it? Uh, when I say she's a puppy, she's 10, but she's oh, a greyhound. That's so exciting. A, a greyhound? So yeah, yeah, she's a foster greyhound. I hear they're all the rage. Oh, yeah, I know. They're going like hotcakes. Um, that's good news. Well, I suppose it is good news, except every time I get one, I'm like, oh, I just wish no one wants you. And then, then of course, somebody does. <laughs> okay, but you found one. Well, I mean, I found one for the moment and then I'm going to have to give her away. Oh, fostering. Mm. Of course. Oh, that must be so devastating. Why do that to yourself? Mm. Uh, um, because... I mean, it's it's good on you for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to involve a certain amount of self-disclosure. My beautiful... <laughs> Beautiful, wonderful greyhound, Maxie, died last year Aww. and he was 12 and after a period of devastating grief, um, I realised that I can't really cope without a dog around the house. So um, no one will be, ever be able to fill a hole in my heart. Uh, and But it was, it's a little... <laughs> <laughs> this is a very sad way to start a morning. I'm frosting up again. I'm not frosting. up the morning at all. <laughs> no, there's a happy ending sort of to this story because actually um, one of the ways I can kind of remember him is by fostering dogs because I would never have had the opportunity to have him in my life if there wasn't somebody there to foster him. Oh, that's so him. nice, Perry. Good on you. Oh, it's it's awesome. And the one that I've got at the moment, she's super lovely. Just from yesterday, did yes, you get it? just from yesterday. Wow. So I got up, the reason I tell you all this is because I got up very early to take her for a walk so I could leave oh. her inside. While we're here in the studio, and talking it was about, about two degrees or something, was it? It was really cold. Yeah, yeah. I wore a hundred layers on my bike, and I thought that'd do, but it still didn't help. <laughs> um, should we get started? Let's go. All right, we've got some catch up to talk about. Um, has anyone? I just finished watching The Handmaid's Tale on SBS On Demand. Has anyone been watching that? Been loving it. Yeah, Perry, yeah. have you been watching it? So I read the book, and I can't watch a movie. Because it's my favourite book of all time, it's really. It's so good, the show. Yeah. I think it's better than the book. Really? Yeah, I reckon it is. It's really good. It's really good. 
<laughs> it can be a bit of a fool's errand to try and compare, you know, written course, word with course. visual medium. Can't yeah, it? but they've yeah. modernised it and they've added in a bit of extra detail. Oh, that would really upset me. Okay, maybe it's not for you. <laughs> well, for everyone else. <laughs> I can't recommend it more highly. I thought it was just so compelling and the performances were excellent. What's pressing your buttons topic-wise? Um, I just, I think the thing that gets to me most is that kind of, the hypocrisy of valuing women for their ability to procreate and and acknowledging that it's a, a valuable thing they can do, but then enslaving them for that very same reason. Like in this, in this dystopian future where there's an f- infertility crisis, Surely the fertile women should be the most powerful people in that society, but it's just been totally flipped around and, yeah, that just gets me. Precisely. And that's the perversity of it, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's just so plausible. The whole thing is so plausible. It's so close to our society. Mm. Yeah. It's It's the ultimate commodification of the human. Exactly right. Mm. Exactly right. And there's a, I think there's a direct line drawn from that book, which was actually written in, I think, the 80s. 85, I think, yeah. yeah um, to The Hunger Games, more modern yeah. sort of version. Um, very similar sort of apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic sort of scenario. And in that situation, what we have is this breakdown into sort of feudalism. Uh, and then it's kind of like crabs in a bucket. The most powerful crab with the biggest claws manages to survive. Exactly right, yeah. And also the hypocrisy of the men running the place that then just get to do whatever they want while they're enslaving everyone around them. What What about shift away from, you know, in a sense, the medicalisation of, of pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing? So it's interesting, yeah. There's one bit in the show where someone has a, a pregnancy test, like a, a urine pregnancy test like we have, but that's smuggled in on the black market because yeah. they don't even use them anymore. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and so it doesn't give you hope. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Not even a little bit. No. But it's worth a watch, I think. Yeah, it's hard to talk about without giving spoilers. And yes. I'm sure there are people who are just going, I don't want it. Don't shut up. Shut yeah, up. I yeah, don't want yeah, to hear yeah. it. We won't yeah, say anything yeah. more. It's good. Fabulous stuff. Worth a watch. Um, more Available on SBS On Demand or it's being shown weekly. Is it I on SBS as well? as well? I just binged yeah. it, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, A quick little public health announcement for our second catch-up item is from the uh, Victoria's Deputy Chief Health Officer, Dr Brett Sutton. He says that the flu is here, but it's not too late to vaccinate. His message is that there's plenty of vaccines to go around and everyone should get one, especially those at high risk of getting the flu. So that means the very young and very old members of the community, as well as people with chronic diseases like asthma and diabetes that should all be rushing off to get one because they're at an increased risk of getting the flu and getting especially crook if they do get the flu. But really it's good for everyone because if you get the flu vaccine, you're not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting the most vulnerable members of the community as well. So remember, there's still time. You can still get your flu shot from your local GP. Lots of chemists do them too. So that's another option as well. Go get them, everyone. There's still time. That's about it. I don't think there's anything to discuss on that, is there? (laughs) Did you get yours? I did. I had mine. Yeah, okay. Lead by example. Yes. Yes. That's right. Um, So third on the catch up. I'm going to talk briefly about the Melbourne Uni Medical School's Ah. student conference, Mm -hmm. which is on every year. So every year the medical school puts on this conference and it's entirely student run and it goes for a week at the start of second semester. It's an opportunity for us as students to take charge of our education and to try and fill in some gaps in our curriculum. So this year, the conference was just a couple of weeks ago. I was on the organising committee myself, but I won't take too much credit because most of my highlights weren't from days that I was involved in. Um, 
Perry was actually generous enough to come along on a day. Is that right, Perry? Yeah, that's right. I was astounded by the quality of discussion. It's quite amazing. It's a really big conference. There's 1,400 medical students, and I don't think I adequately briefed you on that aspect of the conference. (laughs) I I thought I was going to turn up to, like, uh, uh, you know, the Brownless Theatre or something at Melbourne Uni, and there'd be, like, three or four people in the back row. (laughs) That would be it, and it was this amazing amazing uh, conference down at Jeff's Shed, totally dominated the the conference centre. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty impressive. And I think um, this year they they outdid themselves, really. Um, So I just thought I'd talk quickly about some of my highlights from the conference. Monday, the theme was um, power, identity and privilege. And in on, in the morning, the speaker was Elizabeth Nyamayaru, who's the executive director of UN Women and the head of He For She, the He For She initiative, which is a global solidarity movement, which solidarity movement, which seeks to engage men and boys as advocates for gender equality. So she's a huge deal. That was incredible to hear from her. Um, Perry was in on Monday too. So of course that was a highlight for me. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) Tuesday, the theme was advocacy and activism. And in the morning, Clementine Ford came in and she spoke about the medicalisation of women's bodies. And I thought she was fabulous. Um, Specifically, she spoke about abortion, access to contraception, reproductive autonomy, those sorts of things. Very Um, handmaid's tale. Yeah, very Mm. much so. It was actually quite controversial, interestingly. um, I understand the medical school got some emails from some unhappy participants saying, I can't believe Clementine Ford's coming, you know, she hates all men. How could you have her come and speak at the conference? So that was very interesting. So just (laughs) let me um, be devil's advocate for a second. Certainly. Because somebody has to. Sure. (laughs) So was the conference set up to, that didn't actually create space for debate on you know, in the pro um, in the program, and so the people felt the only way that they could challenge the program was to send letters of complaint to faculty. I suspect that's the argument. Yeah, um, that there wasn't. I don't know a men's rights activist also speaking oh. on the day. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other kit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't think much of what she was talking about was very controversial. But maybe that's just my pinko lefty heart. Talking. It's so interesting how things have changed since my day mm-hmm. because I think, you know, the, the discussion about the politics of all of this stuff was never really part of our teaching or even our thinking at that stage. Oh, it certainly isn't in the mainstream curriculum, but that's the point of the conference. We go, oh, what's missing here? Mm-hmm. What, what do we think is important for us to know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great. I was so glad to hear from her. Um, also on Tuesday, I went to an excellent session with Professor Kelsey Hegarty who gave us practical advice for helping a patient who's experiencing intimate partner violence. It was really mm. so good. She is a huge deal too, which I didn't realise until we got there. She was presenting all this data from, you know, UN research into domestic violence, da da da, and she was an author on all of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was wonderful. She was wonderful. Um, what else did we have? On Wednesday, the focus was mental health and self-care. Um, and the, in the morning, we heard from Tom Harkin, who was on ABC's Man Up. I didn't watch that, but some people knew him from that. Um, and he spoke about the necessity of vulnerability and honesty and for example he got all of us to turn to the person next to us and ask how they were and then we had two minutes to answer which was so valuable right usually you say yeah yeah fine 
So did it feel like a long time? A really like long, long time. Enough, really? Well, yes and no. I mean, I was sitting with a very close friend of mine, so we kind of knew everything, so we were just shooting the shit a little bit. But I heard pers- I overheard someone behind me saying, oh, you know, my cat died and this happened and this happened. I thought this poor person probably hasn't had the opportunity to talk about this stuff with her colleagues. Wow. So I thought that was a great opportunity. And another thing he did was he, um, he encouraged a member of the audience, 1,400 medical students, to stand up and tell their life story in 60 seconds. I know, Perry's jaws just dropped. This boy stood (laughs) up, he was so brave, and he told his life story, and everyone was in tears, he was in tears. It was just remarkable. He got a standing ovation. Like, I can't believe it. It was so (laughs) unbelievable. (laughs) So that was very good. Um, Then on Thursday, the theme for the day was cancer and end-of-life care, and I went into the day a bit sort of ambivalent, really. I sort of thought, I don't know if we need a whole day on that. (laughs) Are you serious? I know, I know. It was really good. <laughs> I should have known. I should have known. Uh, in the morning... Do you think it would be a bit of a downer? I guess. And it definitely <laughs> was, but in a good way, I suppose. Um, in the morning, we heard from Dr. Ranjana Srivastava, who's an oncologist in Melbourne and a journalist. She has a column in The Guardian, which is excellent. Excellent, excuse me. Um, and she was as fabulous as I imagined she would be. Um, she spoke about the importance of truth-telling and honesty with our patients, even though it's very difficult, how important that is, and she was just excellent. And then in the afternoon, what I'd say was probably my highlight from the whole conference, we heard from Connie Johnson. So she's Sam Johnson's sister, Sam Johnson, who was in Secret Life of Us and Molly and things like that. And she's she was diagnosed with breast cancer very young, in her 20s or 30s, I can't remember, Um, and she's dying. And she spoke to all of us about her experience with that journey and she was just remarkable. She was really honest but sassy and had a good sense of humour but so courageous. Everybody was just weeping by the end of it. Um, And Sam Johnson was there too filming her and she had some really good advice about, you know, I I, I won't go into detail because it's her story and I don't want to take that from her, but she gave an example of a particularly humiliating experience and doctors saying, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I don't mind. I see it all the time. And she was saying, yeah, but I mind. And I know that sounds really simple, but we're always taught when we're, when we're taught um, sensitive exams and things to normalise it and say, oh, it's not a big deal. I do it all the time. Don't worry about it. But that doesn't actually make it any more normal for the patient. Well, you, yeah, if, just because some person has it every day in their work life doesn't mean... It's the most devastating mm, time for mm, that patient. Yeah. Yeah, so I think acknowledging that was just so important. And she was just remarkable. Um, very, very sad story, obviously, but she's done amazing things with her, the time that she has left. And our, um, her speech to us was actually her last public speaking appearance because she's stopped active treatment for her cancer. Um, so knowing that was also really kind of profound as well. Right, Felt so, like an amazing privilege to... Yeah. So she was introduced with all of this context to her current circumstance, Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, I just wanted to say all that, and I don't know if anyone's listening, but I just wanted to say huge congratulations to the whole organising committee this year, because they really did an excellent job. I don't know how they're going to top it next year, but I'm excited to find out how they do. You might need to take it international next year. Yeah, maybe. the only way that you could possibly top that experience. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really excellent. Yeah. The other thing that I was very impressed by, just being a sort of a, um, a 
a tiny percentage of a participant is the amount of research that's done at an undergraduate or with graduates. So um, in the medical schools these days. So everybody's posters were up on the walls and everybody's completed completed a scholarly project, which is, you know, usually of publishable quality in all sorts of different areas of research. And that's I right, that, yeah. I think that's really important to integrate into your life as a doctor, actually. You can't really be a good clinician unless you think about um, the evidence that's behind the things that you do. And I think that's a really important thing to integrate into your discussions also with patients because these days patients don't just say, what do you think, doctor? They want you to say, I think you should do this because the evidence says this. And that's so a really you- good point, Perry. And it's good to hear because we sort of, as, as the student body, we get a bit critical of the curriculum sometimes and we feel like we don't get enough hands-on experience or clinical experience and the research component of the course is, you know, six months that we're not spending in a hospital learning how to be a good doctor. Um, so some people criticise the research components. It's good, to, it's good to hear that you think it's important. And Yeah, I think it's crucial. And I also think that um, it's a different kind of experience. A lot of the time as medical students, you stand in the corner of the room and watch other people do something. <laughs> yeah. um, if you're doing a research project, you're actually contributing to a body of knowledge and you're participating in a team which includes other people most of whom are graduates and, and working as doctors. And so I think it's your first experience of working in that kind of very um, team-based atmosphere, which is the way you're going to have to work for the rest of your lives, really, if you're going to be a doctor. Absolutely. What are we doing now? Oh, we're hearing from Panel Beater about surgical volunteers. No, we're not. We're hearing from Perry. Hello. <gasps> Sorry, I got confused. <laughs> Dr. Perry Partham is going to talk to us about opiate use in Australia, is that right? Yes, that's right. So so (laughs) following on from a conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago on air, which was about opiate, the massive explosion in opiate-related deaths in America, particularly in specific parts of North America, uh, including sort of the Appalachian areas and the very kind of downtrodden sort of Trumpian parts of America, which are experiencing a lot of hardship. Uh, And I sort of said very flippantly on air that I sort of preferred heroin use to ice use because people don't become incredibly aggressive and and destructive on heroin. And now I take it all back because uh, um, I had another look at the drug overdose deaths uh, in Victoria and Australia, and and it's and it's pretty grim actually. Mm. Heroin's becoming more and more of an issue for us. Uh, in Victoria. Mm. Um, so there's been, there, as a consequence, I think, of the spike in heroin-related deaths in the last little while, there's been uh, a revisiting of that old discussion about drug injecting rooms in Richmond, which has been sort of on and off the table for a long time now. I remember even when Jeff Kemmett was Premier, there was discussion, which you probably don't even remember. Were you alive? Only ju- I was alive. I was alive. <laughs> I do remember when he was Premier, just... <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, there was controversy even then about this because, uh, of course, there's a real conflict between the sort of law and order approach to drug use and misuse and then the sort of harm minimisation approach. Uh, and it's very hard to keep both of those ideas in your mind at the one time. So there are various different uh, measures that people are trying to use to reduce the mortality related to drug overdose deaths in Victoria. And the coroner actually um, wrote an opinion piece in The Age earlier this year trying to talk about various different ways that we might be able to tackle the problem. But the problem itself is actually pretty significant. So last year, 477 Victorians died of a drug overdose, and that's up about 40% since 2010. 
Wow. And most of these are multiple drug overdoses. So no one or very few people die of a single kind of um, substance. Usually when their blood is tested after they've passed away, it contains a variety of different kinds of medications. Some of them are illicit, like heroin, and some of them are prescribed. And the and there's also a significant contribution from alcohol mm. in uh, lots of these deaths. So the prescribed medications are often the medications like um, benzodiazepines like Valium and Alprazolam, known as Xanax, mm. uh, and antidepressants, unsurprisingly, but also um, major tranquilizers, um, antipsychotic medications like quetiapine, uh, and and drug medic uh, medications that are used primarily to treat pain, so uh, gabapentin, pregabalin, that sort of thing. So I think that's quite significant, um, and I, I think it's also interesting to sort of look at the increasing proportion of drug related deaths that are related to illicit drug use, which has increased since 2014. So the big difference between 2014 and now is, of course, Xanax is now a Schedule 8 drug, which means it's it's highly restricted in mm. its use. It's not for long-term use, specifically only licensed for short-term use of uh, panic disorder and to treat anxiety relating to major depressive disorder. And I think that's actually had a really positive effect on the number of people who've died as a consequence of using alprazolam. Um, but I, I think several things are happening at once because overall drug deaths have increased. Mm. The proportion of drug deaths that are related to illicit drug use has increased. That's also. surprising. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought prescription drugs are more to blame. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that alprazolam particularly was a very dangerous drug. Mm. Uh, all benzodiazepines tend to depress your respiratory drive. So um, if you're in an altered conscious state and part of the medications that you're taking are, are benzodiazepine-based, that's dangerous because you can stop breathing. And mm. I think that's the basis of their contribution to deaths. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, illicit Substances have contributed to um, initially a few, few years ago, maybe forty percent of deaths, and now they've risen to um, contribute to maybe fifty-five percent of deaths. Wow. I mean, when I think about that, actually, illicit drugs should contribute to a hundred percent of deaths because we don't want anyone prescribing a medication that's going to kill someone. I mean, that's sort of the antithesis of what you do as a doctor. Yeah. You would hope, um, but I think what we need to look at. Can I just get you to clarify that stat? Yeah. So that's. Um, of all deaths by some kind of overdose or misuse of um, drugs, using the term in its broadest definition, um, 55% of those deaths are by illicit drugs. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, up from 40% about three or four years up ago. Up from 40. Yeah. Uh, of course, alcohol is not an illicit drug. Mm. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I suppose I want to look a little bit beyond the actual numbers to think about the stuff that we're doing to contribute or to this problem or to maybe improve at the issues. And um, I suppose uh, you look at the people then who've died and, and what their vulnerabilities might have been. So we know that about half of people um, who 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 have overdosed in the last few years uh, had a drug dependency and a diagnosed mental illness. And so I think we need to pay particular attention to our patients who have mental health problems and a drug use problem. But it's not just the psychiatric dimension of all of this, it's the social as well. So people who have problems with homelessness and unemployment, there's this little kind of Venn diagram where the people who sit in the centre of that mm. are um, uniquely vulnerable, I think. Mm. So I think measures aimed at improving people's quality of life are going to be very important. Um, but I also think that restricting the access to medications that we know are really 
problematic like alprazolam is is an important measure. Um, and there's an interesting uh, recent le- piece of legislation that's been enacted in Victoria called the um, uh, it's called the substance. Uh, oh, now, now I've forgotten the exact name of it. I'm going to Google while we go on off air and listen to something else. But it's the um, uh, severe substance. Dependence Treatment Act, um, enacted only a year or two ago, and it's about involuntary detention of people who have um, a problem with substance use so severe that it's considered likely to contribute to their death in a sort of an imminent manner. Uh, and in Victoria, you can detain someone for up to two weeks under that act, um, whereas in New South Wales, you can detain someone for sort of several months, really. Um, and I find that terribly coercive, actually. I find mm. it really quite um, an alien piece of legislation. Uh, but I suppose it's a demonstration of, uh, you know, a concern that exists in the community such that this legislation has passed Parliament. Wow. Yeah, so we can talk about that, I suppose, about the, the pros and cons of such a very restrictive act. Are there pros? <laughs> well, so... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about those. Let's, let's begin there. Good start. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I suppose people who advocate for the legislation would suggest that it might be the thing that stops someone dying. Uh-huh. So, uh, and... It's a fairly big pro, I suppose, if yeah, it's true. Yeah, you know, I, I think that would be considered a big positive by people's family members who are often the people who are most directly affected by their, their drug problem. Sure. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's good that it's very highly controlled and so, therefore, a magistrate has to make that decision uh, and there has to be a presentation to the magistrate's court uh, to support the idea that this person is really at imminent risk of death if they continue their current pattern of substance use. Wow, and who makes that presentation? Do you know? Is it the family or doctors or...? Yeah, so family and um, and treating clinicians are all, all invited to make submissions. And uh, and how how's the legitimacy of those submissions tested? Mm. Well, I suppose in a court there will be a for and against, so there'll mm. be people who are arguing against it. And certainly um, the thing that worries me a little bit is that people who are in this position, as I've already mentioned, are pretty vulnerable. Mm. So I'm not sure that they would necessarily have recourse to barristers to argue mm. their case. They're probably representing themselves. Mm. So I think that that's, that's a, a, a point of the legislation which I think is, is vulnerable to abuse and, and coercion, really. Mm. Um, if you think about the population that it's supposed to target. Uh, at the moment, the only area in Victoria that I'm aware of where this particular act can be enacted is at St Vincent's Hospital. So people who are referred from other areas will then be admitted to St Vincent's Hospital. And um, the question is, how do you ensure that you enforce such legislation? Because if they're in a hospital environment, obviously you can't lock the doors, they're in a general medical bed. Um, and the argument has been made that they should therefore be transferred to psychiatric wards, but which can then be locked. But I think that is such a huge ethical count of worms, both for the person who's transferred there uh, and for the other patients who are in their company um, and for what it says about what, how we categorise this particular problem. Yeah. Wow. So who was, in the, in the first instance, just take us back a step, who was, who was proactively lobbying for un- such an act to come into place? Who, who's, who are those people who obviously we can then think about what have they got to gain from? Because I, when you talk about the resources being used in the hospitals, it's mm. hard to think that the hospitals are big fans of this. Yes, I think they're not. 
<laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I need to sort of emphasise that the numbers in... The numbers are very small of these people that have been actually treated in this manner and so small, in fact, that it's pretty oh. hard to get data on how effective they've been and, and what the outcomes have been for mm. those individuals in a statistical sense. Um, so I think that the problem is we don't have much evidence to suggest that it's effective. Uh, we probably need more time for more people to go through the program so we can see whether or not there is some effectiveness to it. But again... Well, and then, like, I'm, I know I'm getting kind of wound up about this. The, the, um, the, you, you mentioned the pro being you save a life. Mm. It's hard to think that anyone would, in fact, die once they were involuntarily restrained. Mm. But oh, what happens... they're not, like, tied to a bed. No, no, they're, no. You know, they're, they're that was probably just where my mindset was. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but it's involuntary wherever they yes, are. that's right. Um, and so it's not hard to imagine that if the metric for success is nobody dies mm. during that period, mm. then they're probably going to meet that metric. And what and what happens is after that's that right. period and that's that we think about the issue. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's what the research is aimed at. They follow these people over the subsequent 6, 12, 14, 24 right. months. So, yes, I think it's highly controversial. And I'm really surprised there hasn't been a much yeah. bigger media conversation about the ethics. I've not heard of this. Why didn't I get the memo? <laughs> You're hearing about it first on Radio 3. <laughs> there we go. It's Thanks, 35 past 10. <laughs> Thanks so much, Perry. Um, I'm interested to go back to the some of the stats you were talking about with drug overdose before. Yep. Yep. You said that 55% of drug deaths are attributable to illicit drugs. How many of those involve an opiate? Almost all of them? A uh, large percentage of them. I mm. think I've got, I've got the numbers on hand, but I haven't written them down in That's this okay. particular cheat sheet. Sure. Uh, increasing numbers over the last sort of three or four years have been related to opiates and in particular heroin. And I'm also wondering in the, I guess, other 45% that are not involving illicit drugs, I'm assuming that could include alcohol, but it's also a lot of prescription drugs. That's right. Does that include people who've attained prescription drugs Illegally? I mean, this is just a side point, but if people are prescribing responsibly, hopefully people wouldn't be able to die from their medication. Yeah, so I suppose this is another harm reduction measure. We talked a little bit earlier about the difference between the sort of coercive and law enforcement measures like the SSDTA and then harm minimisation like drug injecting rooms. Um, one of the ways in which we can potentially reduce the... Um, the, the use of or of hoarding of large amounts of medication with the intent either to overdose to die or just to use it recreationally is by having a, a register of pharmacies and prescriptions that uh, have been picked up. Um, different states have had different approaches to this over time and Tasmania has um, actually a pretty good register. Uh, Victoria as yet has not developed such a robust register mm. um, but more and more um, people can call up a central telephone number if a, a pharmacist can call a central telephone number and a note whether or not someone's recently filled a prescription for the same medication in recent times so uh -huh. I think that if there was a more robust system then I think that would make it a lot um, a lot easier to reduce the harm associated with prescription drugs um, it's, and it would also make it easier to tell whether or not someone didn't have a prescription for the medication that they have mm. which is legal mm. um, and it's in their system and it's being trafficked uh, I suppose the other thing that I noticed about the kind of the, the licit drugs, the legal <laughs> drugs that have contributed to deaths is that paracetamol is head and shoulders above all of the other medications as you would all be aware because Panadol is, is a lethal medication when taken in overdose. So I've always wondered why 
that's not more closely monitored and... Even in therapeutic doses, Panadol can be disastrous in the wrong circumstances. Well, I think uh, the, the problem that we have is that it, it's so readily available mm. uh, and people think of it as innocuous, whereas really um, it, it can really damage your liver and, and that's a terrible way to live, I think. Yep. The deaths from the illicit... That, that number. Um, are the deaths um, something to do with purity um, mm. or, is it, uh, or is it that rather than um, using the opiates in combination with something else? Is there information on that? So I think it's hard for us to know what actually stopped someone's heart in the end, whether mm. it was an overdose of extremely powerful heroin or if it was actually the combination of other medications, I suppose all you can do is look at um, deaths from just one drug and deaths from um, deaths of patients who had multiple drugs in their system. But even then you'll miss some of them who were taking like a very large, very powerful, very pure um, mm. overdose of heroin. Because I think you were saying, um, was it off air or on air? I've gotten all blurry on this. <laughs> but did you say, you said something about um, the, the those dying from opiate overdoses at the moment have been long term users? Yes, we talked about this before, actually. Right. Um, so maybe I'll just run over yeah. it for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, when they've done an analysis of the increase in recent deaths from heroin, they've noticed that actually the age of people dying is much about 10 years older than they were in the late 90s when which was probably the last time that Melbourne and Victoria in general saw a, a big spike in in heroin use uh, and there have been a few theories a- about what that's about um, maybe it's the long-term heroin users who survived the epidemic of drug-related deaths in the late 90s and are now more vulnerable at an older age uh, or Potentially, it's because the kind of heroin that's being used these days is a lot more powerful um, and they haven't anticipated the increase in their purity. Um, so I think it's interesting that there's a demographic shift uh, and it suggests to me that we're getting much more sort of um, stratified in terms of, the, in terms of age and the use of drugs, mm. I think. Uh, but I suppose it also means that the the cohort of people who started using heroin in the 90s and are now, you know, approaching middle age are approaching a, a time in their lives where they're particularly vulnerable because their physical health is probably not as good as it was before. And so perhaps we're also seeing people dying mm. from that from that cause as well. Mm. Wow. Interesting stuff, Perry. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, and we're going to hear from Dr. Panel Bleed a bit now. Yeah, I was um, during the week very pleased to see some um, attention being given in the scientific journals towards volunteerism. Mm. So um, you may recall that that's an area of interest, research interest for me. But the research tends to be found in tourism literature and oh. in um, development. Um, to a certain extent, global development. So um, an article popped up in keyword search from the International Journal of Surgery uh, from June, Mm. and they were addressing volunteerism. What's interesting about this is the distinction that's possible between what is conventionally, generically understood as volunteerism and what we might compare contrast that to surgical volunteerism um, and then how we might evaluate those things. But... Let's jump in maybe with some context and definitional stuff. That would be great yeah? because I was putting my hand up because I don't know what you're talking about. Ah, <laughs> here we go, volunteerism. First of all, have you heard the word? I have, yes. Volunteer tourism, volunteerism, that kind of thing, you'll, you'll hear those. Um, 
the broadest understanding of what that might mean for purposes of discussion would be a, um, a circumstance where somebody like us here in Melbourne might go and spend um, something typically between, say, about two and six weeks in what we might, um, you know, um, vernacularly think of as the third world. Um, in other words, a, a, you know, a community that's lacking some kind of um, service, be it education, health, um, a civic service of some sort, legal services and, and so on. Um, the people who are, you know, the largest proportion, the profile of people who are doing this are typically um, between about 20 and about 30, 35, but by no means that's the only only group. Um, in other words, they're people who have got a bit of time and money on their hands. So they've got the time to go and do it and they've got the money because they'll be paying for themselves. Um, they'll often pay a fee to do it, like a placement agency will find um, an NGO who's doing some kind of work that works for them. Um, and the third thing that they've got is good intentions. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> What's wrong with that? You say it with such cynicism. Was that a, was that a cyn- cynical snigger? Yeah, ah, it was, it was. I mean, okay. you just hear these shocking stories. I'm sure you're going to talk about it, so keep going, keep going. <laughs> so just, yeah, I'll just set the scene there. We can really unwrap all these <laughs> horrible, cynical stories. Um, uh, so we've got, we've got somebody with time, money and good intentions going somewhere out of their um, domestic life into an international um, um, setting are working with people who are suffering from some kind of injustice, economic, social, political, cultural, I'm environmental. I'm still waiting to hear the negative here. I'm very surprised by the cynicism <laughs> yeah, on oh, both good. of you. It's, it's coming, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> um, so let's, let's start with that. What, what could possibly be wrong with that? Go I, on. I have an excellent anecdote. Yeah. I can't remember who told me and I can't remember the country, but I believe it was somewhere in Africa. Someone went on this volunteer thing where they were building I think they were building a school and the, so far so good right yes yeah, so sounds great right a group of white kids going and building a school for this poor community somewhere in Africa and none of them had any sort of building qualifications so they're probably picking up a drill and a hammer for the first time in their lives but they're under supervision right surely surely Perhaps not by builders, though. Yeah. Well, but so the, anyway, what ended up happening was they spent the day building this school slowly and then at night when they were all resting comfortably in their whatever accommodation, locals would dismantle what they'd built during the day and rebuild it to actual building specifications <laughs> because they were qualified people. And then the, the white kids would come back out in the day and say, oh, cool, let's get back to it. They're doing good stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's just there's an issue there where the money would have been much better spent just funding the locals to do the work that they were actually skilled to do. Mm, I think that's a reasonable point. However, I would also counter that... Um, the exposure for these people who may never have been in a similar sort of community and setting is actually really important for okay. them to see a different part of the world and so and, and a different way of people experiencing life. So I would say that's a poorly run volunteer it's a pretty extreme example. opportunity. Yeah. And I think that there should be a lot of oversight to try and reduce the risk that somebody's that the people are doing something that's either not useful or not mm-hmm. well tailored or or, you know, actually dangerous to the participants. But in that context, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to do a good thing. Yes, there is. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, no, that was a knee-jerk reaction. Um, yes, we've got to harness the goodwill. We've got yeah, to harness the exactly good intentions. That's right, but there's nothing wrong with we've it in itself. got to find a way to make those good intentions... Um, Effective. Useful. Yeah. Um, the, and, and you're quite right. I mean, if... In the hypothetical situation where um, the scenario that Training Wheels was just describing, where you did have oversight by qualified people, maybe you could then argue it's a good idea. The, but the problem is that's that's the exception rather than the rule. Or it's, if- it's, it's a highly unregulated industry, right? And also think of the settings just in terms of local governance. If you wanted to build a school in, in Melbourne... Right. Think of all of the just council level bureaucracy bureaucracy you have mm. to go through just to make sure it's signed off and, and so on and so forth. Um, by virtue of being in a setting where those governance structures aren't in place, it's ripe for corruption. It's ripe for negligence. It's ripe for all sorts of abuses. But don't get me, I mean, just, mm. just to hop on this example for a moment these kids are being employed as laborers essentially yeah. they're being employed as unskilled laborers and so if they have adequate supervision if they're working to plans under under you know direction of people who know what yeah. they're doing then that's actually not such a bad thing yeah it well so it, this is a good counterpoint right so th- that that's that's a reasonable and understandable reaction to it right so, so hang on th- i'm not a friend of vanstone <laughs> still not convinced so so no um so the thing is first of all they're not employed they're actually volunteers so what so if they go into a community where the average salary is a dollar a day mm. How can you undercut somebody working for a dollar a day? So you're worried that they're displacing you're the local working labourers. for free, right? Okay, well, for negative money, you know, yeah. they pay to go there, right? Yeah. So if you wanted to do a like a, a an accounting balance sheet and say, okay, um, per volunteerist, it's ten thousand dollars. How can you spend ten thousand dollars to achieve the same end goal, build a school? Mm. Um, you might use that ten thousand dollars to set up apprenticeships in carpentry and building. Mm. rather than send volunteers to do it and so mm. forth. The problem that you have, though, is that you have this huge pool of willing teenagers mm. and people in their early 20s. What are you going to do with them? Like, you can't just kind of send them in a little boat around Australia again and again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, I would I don't think it's overstating the point. Um, to, to the argument that it's it's a valuable lesson, and this will segue us into sur- surgical Sorry, uh, volunteerism. Sorry. <laughs> Um, I'm stuck on the th- t- on the theories. It's, it's a common it. defence of volunteerism. Um, it means people get to see something outside their comfort zone, and they get to see how people are less fortunate themselves, and so on and so forth. And and in the in the literature, capital L literature, um, the discourse analysis of this is that pre-departure volunteers will typically say, "I know how privileged I am, and I want to give back." In the discourse that they offer in interviews after experience. They talk about how much they've become a better person. Mm. And these are different discourses. So it becomes the beneficiary of it becomes the volunteerist, not the target That's community. That's very interesting. Right? Um, so and I got- wonder if there's also a sense of satisfaction from having done that good work that means I can, you know, wipe my hands now and I've done my good deed for my right. life. I know I'm a good person, the end. Yep. The other, the other, the other response to the... Um, um, but they've got good intentions and they should see the rest of the world and people living. I, I would take the position, and it's a debatable position, but I would take the position, if you need to go and see somebody live in poverty to believe poverty exists, there's a different problem to address. Oof. In the same way as... 
Yeah. Um, and and I think and I think that's that, you know setting up the problem solution question in that fashion works for me. Um, I can see in your eyes that there's still some equivocation. Not convinced. Let me, let me, because we're running out of time, let's set up a contrast now with that generic form of volunteerism with surgical volunteerism. Okay, so I characterise volunteerism with these unskilled people going and doing um, whatever. Now we're dealing with skilled people. How do we think about this same thing where the only difference is that we do actually have skilled people? So um, very often um, these are fully qualified doctors and they may spend, um, you know, a, a, a six-month placement in a maternity ward and, um, or, or a three-month placement or a one-month placement um, somewhere and they'll go and do that. Um, but uh, increasingly this is being um, brought into the curriculum in, in medical training. Okay, so um, this particular study from um, the IGS, the International Journal of Surgery, looked at a few schools. They were, first of all, it was from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, mm. were the authors, um, but they looked at um, programs uh, in the United States, Canada, and in the UK, where where students were offered the opportunity. It wasn't compulsory, but they were offered an elective um, where they they could go on placements at an advanced stage in their training. Um, how do we start to think about that, do you reckon, in contrast to the first discussion? Well, I mean, I, I would say, are they displacing... So your argument against the first one was really several-fold, but one of the arguments that you had was they're displacing locals. And, and is that possible that this is what's happening here as well? Right. So the, the defence of the surgical placements or the trained placements um, is that they are actually addressing a lack in capacity. So when they do a placement in a hospital or a clinic or a community um, out, um, outreach, um, they're doing it because it doesn't exist locally. And that's a really powerful defence of it. But they're... Um, um, and, and in fact, one, one statistic that they quoted um, was that there's about a, you know, in a per population to doctor per head. Um, it's like, you know... at best in these sorts of countries that we're talking about. It's like a hundred to one difference mm. um, in terms of qualified medical professional. So it's prima facie that there's medical expertise required in these in these communities. Mm. Um, and um, the the like the World Health Organization pointed out that that one of the great uh, inhibitors to the eradication of HIV now is not money. Um, although that's still an issue, it's been overtaken by lack of human resources really? to address it. So nurses and qualified professionals and so on, right? So there's a capacity issue to address there. Um, so that's a pretty strong argument for it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah what are your counter arguments? <laughs> um, well, the counter arguments in this article, um, well, they don't present them as arguments. They present them as um, challenges, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay? So I'll list them in seven and we'll race through the last couple of minutes. Um, so number one, there's ethical questions. So lack of consent. Oh. So there's a power, um, um, uh, disproportionate power between the delivering um, institution and the recipient institution. Like they just you know, rock up. So they're so incapacitated, what position do they have to say no thanks? So there's an informed consent for patients. Um, there's, there's use in order to get placed doctors and nurses and so on, they obviously have to do something resembling marketing to promote it. So there's unauthorised use of 
images and in um, testimonials and things like that. I think that's a bit lame, that one. Okay, we'll dismiss that one. We'll just keep going on. Um, three, there's um, practising new procedural techniques. So it turns out into these studies that things are being experimented. That's very unsurprising right? to me. They're medical students, They're right? They've got to practice. Yep. No, no, no. They're probably actually like surgical trainees. Like so wouldn't... these are trainees. Oh, they yeah. are. Okay. Yeah, but they're, but they're, um, they're trainees. Sure, but a surgical trainee is different from a medical sure, student. Sure, yes, that's true, yeah. that's true. Um, I'm just keeping an eye on time, guys, Sorry. so I'm racing through. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, there's a lack of contextual knowledge, right? So it's all mm. well and good that you might be placed there, but if your training in the program, your domestic program, isn't training you for a context other than, say, Melbourne, mm. then if you're going in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, there's something else to different. consider there. Mm. Um there's um, various models um, that might be able to accommodate this, but there's no monitoring and evaluation and, and so on going on. And um, that obviously has implications for evaluating whether, in fact, it is defendable. Mm. But I, I suppose uh, sending them over there as part of a training program means that there is oversight from the parent institution and it's in their interest that there is no violations of ethics codes or um, and that the standard... Whose ethics codes? Of the institution. So there's ethics boards for research. So if yep. you wanted to go and do HIV research somewhere, you'd have to get it passed through your home institution's ethics board. For placement like this, the student might go and do it outside of the program. This is a great topic, guys, but we're out of time. What a shame. Maybe we'll talk about it next time. Yeah. It's really interesting and there's a lot to talk about. Thank you very much, Panel Beater, for that fabulous <laughs> topic. Perry Pardum, for your wisdom as always. I'm Dr Training Wheels. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at... Radiotherapy on 3RRR, and we've also got the podcast. You can listen to us on Radio On Demand. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.